Advent is a time of preparation, of a great sense of expectation for the Lord's coming, because we believe that Christ will return. Christ will come again. And so we identify in this waiting with ancient Israel in the way that they expected the Messiah to come. We learn from them how to await salvation. And something we learn in these prophecies that we hear in the first readings throughout these Sundays is a sort of line motif that comes over again, over and over again. And it was the conviction that nothing that Israel would do as a human effort would suffice to reform society. It had been tried over and over again, and it never worked. Human efforts were never enough to fully uproot evil and bring the kingdom of God. And I think in this time of crisis, in so many ways in the church, in society, we can certainly empathize with that and that feeling. And yet, that negative perception, if you want, of human capabilities didn't lead the prophets to become despondent or, or, you know, or just lose hope, but rather it was transformed into a, hopeful, a hope-filled cry for the Messiah to come. They knew that we couldn't achieve the change, but God could. God could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so you notice that already in this, in this first reading itself. For example, that emphasis that a shoot shall sprout, a bud shall blossom, and on him the Spirit of the Lord would, would rest. Not on us quite yet, but in, initially in Christ. And from Christ, it would then spread to Israel and to the world. You see in the lines that follow, the wolf shall be a guest of the lamb. There shall be no harm or ruin on my, on my holy mountain. The earth will be, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So you see the salvation that comes in the person of Christ where the in, on whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest, and then will expand to all, all the nation and all nations. So it's at the same time kind of acknowledging that we cannot do this, we cannot change ourselves, but God can, and He will. Now, having this context in mind, the words that we hear today from John the Baptist are a bit surprising. See, let's, let's listen to them again. I am baptizing you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, now again, there's something striking here. Why is John asking people to repent if our efforts in the end are never enough? I mean, what's the purpose? If the Messiah is coming precisely to give us the justice and holiness we do not have, well, what's the purpose of trying to do that on our own? Isn't begging the question in a way. I mean, was John really expecting people to do what he said? And if he did, then everyone would be converted and we wouldn't need the Messiah anymore. Well, I think that conundrum can be solved in this way. You know, John is asking Israel to repent, to be ready for the coming of Christ so that their eyes would be open and they would recognize him. See, if they remained, if we remain in our sin, 
we would be completely blind and indifferent to the coming of Christ. We wouldn't even notice he's around us. But this repentance and initial justice, uh, much needed, is not yet perfect love. It's simply an, like an initial conversion. It's a very timid step in the right direction, right? It's, it's being baptized with water, not yet with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's a first step of improvement, but the infusion of that new life of the Holy Spirit only, can only come from above, not from our doing. Still, that first purification of the soul is needed. Again, otherwise we would be blinded. Christ would come in vain because we wouldn't even notice him. We wouldn't be open. Now, a great illustration of this is Something I already commented on this book a few weeks ago, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He also has this, this short uh, fiction book and theology fiction, I would say, in which he, he shows how people are caught in this in between heaven and hell. It's as if they were in this twilight zone after this life and they had a final opportunity to choose for God or against God. And they... In a sense, they want to go to heaven, but they are still caught in something that doesn't allow them to walk freely towards God. And so God sends to them people that come from heaven, people that knew them on earth and are trying to convince them to come along. Well, one of these heavenly people is a, is a beautiful, resplendent lady that is coming to persuade Frank, the man who was her husband on earth, to follow her to, to heaven. Apparently, Frank had survived his wife for many years, and the first thing he wants to hear is how unhappy she has been missing him. But the lady replies, you know, but Frank, how could I be unhappy in this place? I have found what true love is. And Frank is taken aback. He says, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? And she says, only in a poor sort of way. There was a little real love in it, but what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I loved you for my own sake, because I needed you. And now, said Frank with a gesture of despair, now you need me no more? See, Frank had a hard time accepting that a love that wasn't needy could exist. He only thought of love as as a needy kind of love. And he, maybe he might have agreed that, in theory, God could love someone without needing that person. But real people couldn't quite relate that way. And if he wasn't needed, that meant he wasn't loved, period. So he was a kind of an experience of love that came from God, and, this, and his wife discovered a, a love that wasn't based on need, but based on pure, selfless self-giving. And God wanted to give him that. He had no experience of it, right? That was the love coming from above, from the Holy Spirit. But there was something blocking his step into that kingdom, into that new kind of love. And was that he was clinging to um, using pity in the wrong way, using pity to control other people, which is already evident in the first question to his wife, did you miss me? He's always trying to do that. And, and the lady points it out to him. She says, Frank, even as a child, instead of saying you were sorry, 
you went and sulked in the attic because you knew that sooner or later one of your sisters would say, oh, I can't bear to think of him sitting up there alone crying. You used your pity to blackmail them, and they gave in in the end. See, his wife now knows, and he says, you know, you, Frank, you always use this sort of control mechanism to get your way, you know, and you only think that that's the only love that exists, when people feel guilty for not loving you, or, or when you, people are needed and then, then they love you. But God wants to give you a higher kind of love. And only if you let go of this control mechanism, only if you let go of that pity used the wrong way, can you come with me. Well, it was hard for him, you know. But I thought that was a, it's a great image of what happens so many times. God wants to give us something greater we have not experienced. And we, would, we don't want to enter into that new joy and new love because we are clinging to something here we don't want to let go of. And that's the thing about Advent. God, we expect God to come to us, but we have no idea what that feels like, what that looks like. We have very limited experience of the Holy Spirit. But we do know what we need to change. We have a sense that, you know, this isn't quite right. I shouldn't be reacting this way. I shouldn't be thinking, judging, feeling this way. This is something I need to give up. And so the question is, what is it that we need to surrender? What is it? What is that cleansing that the Lord needs to do as a first step so that my eyes may be open? What the Holy Spirit can do in you, we don't yet know. It can be beyond our imagination. But we do know the first step we need to take. Without taking that step, the, the other things are, we're blinded to them. So what is it? Is it maybe my silent moodiness? Or is it never quite trusting other people to know me very deeply? To let them know who, what I think, who I am? Is it holding on, on to grievances or offense, resentment? Is it wanting to control that everything has to be this exact way? Is it that I, I don't quite accept the imperfections of people around me? Or maybe, you know, that people close to me, I don't want to make time for them except when I need them. But otherwise, I don't want to make time, time for them. Well, whatever that may be that is not quite right, I need to let go so that the Lord may come now with a higher calling. So let us pray for that. Let us pray that we may be open and our hope may be open to that greater life, perception, joy that God wants to bring to us, but also for the grace to change what is at hand, the thing that we see right now as a first step. So may we pray. Lord Jesus, open the eyes of my heart to the new life you want to give me. Lord, you want me to be able to pray in a new way, to know others in a new way, to see my own talents in a new way, to perceive my own crosses and sufferings in a new way, just like, your son, just like you did, Lord, on this earth. But that's beyond my imagination. Let me simply prepare for those gifts by giving up those things that spoil my joy and, and make me blind to the signs of 
your coming. Come, Lord Jesus, and open my heart. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.